only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Scripture reading comes to us this morning from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter number 10, verses 14 through 22 and chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. If you're using the Blue Hymn Bible, that would be found on pages 957 and then continuing on page 958. First Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May the Lord bless his word. Let's seek uh, God's blessing upon us as we uh, hear his word. Lord, as uh, Peter wrote, uh, men did not speak of their own will, but uh, moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke the words of God. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us this word uh, from the Apostle Paul. 
this word about uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table that we celebrate regularly. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater and greater understanding so that we can explore the riches of this institution that you've given us so that we can be more and more benefited from it and more and more enriched in Christ because of our understanding of it. Oh, Lord, how we thank you that you've given us such an institution as the Lord's Supper. What an emblem of your love, what a symbol of your goodness to us, your goodwill toward us, how you define your revelation of yourself according to this death of Jesus. This is the way you've revealed yourself to mankind. This is the way your glory breaks out in the world. It breaks out by the proclamation that God has come in the person of Christ and suffered for sinners. Oh Lord, may we indeed, as Paul says here, proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're... uh, in a series on worship, and uh, if you've not been with us, and now we're turning to the Lord's Supper, or some call it communion, or Lord's Table, uh, for the next several weeks. Here, here's some of the topics we're going to uh, try to cover. Uh, t- today, we're going to talk about the Lord's Table, a participation in Christ. Uh, next week, the Lord's Table, uh, the covenant and future. How, how is the Lord's Table a covenant? And a, and a renewal of covenant, and, and how does it point to the future as this covenant? Then uh, we'll also, the, the, a third week, we'll talk about the Lord's table and fellowship, what, what it declares to us about our uh, unity, our solidarity as God's people. And, and we'll explore some of what he's talking about here more deeply about not participating participating in the sacrifices because we belong to the covenant community of God. And we're going to talk about the Lord's table more directly uh, as it declares forgiveness and then a last time uh, the Lord's table as it declares transformation uh, in Christ. So this is just a a small attempt to try to mine the riches of what Christ has given us in in the Lord's table. So this morning, this word, the Lord's table, a participation in Christ. And we get this word from chapter 10, verse 16, that the cup of blessing is a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? To begin with, as a kind of uh, background to help us understand the nature of this participation, I want to talk about the gospel and the Lord's Supper and how they are joined together in the thinking of the New Testament. Okay, how the gospel proclaimed and the and the Lord's Supper are joined together, and they're joined in this this way. We just keep running through trying to distinguish and unite them. The gospel proclaims Christ, and then the Lord's Supper proclaims Christ as well. They don't proclaim two different things. They proclaim the same thing. The gospel proclaims Christ. The Lord's Supper proclaims Christ. The gospel proclaims Christ, obviously, with words, right? And then the supper proclaims Christ with the signs of bread 
and wine. But it is the same Christ being proclaimed in each case. So as the gospel proclaims God's good will to us in Christ, it proclaims His abundant mercy and it proclaims His kindness to us in Christ, the supper then fixes our hearts on those promises of His goodwill and mercy and kindness. The supper is meant all the more to fix our hearts so that we believe and are enriched by those promises. The supper doesn't point us in a different way. The supper tries to encourage and strengthen us to believe in what the gospel has proclaimed to us, okay? So that the, the Lord's Supper, as all signs in Scripture, physical things given to point to spiritual things, the Lord's Supper is given to us to sustain and nourish the weakness of our faith. And it's interesting that John Calvin talks about this as much as anybody. And, and it's interesting in the light of criticism that we don't need such things. The word itself should do it for us. He just again and again says, we are weak and helpless and frail and given to this earth and focused on earthly things. We need to be taken with some earthly things and led to spiritual things. It's a beautiful picture that he gives us. And he fights against many that have an over-spiritualized or idealized view of how we just hear the word and believe it. And he says, no, we're all pitted down in the earth and we need God to take something of this world and this earth and let it take us to help us believe in these glorious things that Jesus has proclaimed to us. So he, he feels like, as, as so many reformers did, that this is absolutely necessary for us. And Jesus gives it to us in great wisdom and in great kindness to us. Because, and, and, and take it as this, that's how much Jesus wants you to believe the promises of his gospel. That he brings it alongside to shoo you further into believing those promises to woo you and encourage you, believe the promises that you've heard in the gospel. So the supper then makes God's promise in Christ more evident to us. It's a, his way of putting a seal on the promise. You know, a seal is a guarantee. So a king writes a letter, he has some wax, and he puts his official seal on it, and you get that letter and you say, ooh, this has the king's seal on it. This is, this is really a, a letter from the king. This is authentic. And so it, Paul uses that word seal to describe circumcision in Romans 4. And so it's a, a word associated with uh, things like circumcision, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So it's God's way of guaranteeing to us the reality of what was promised in the gospel. As real as this bread is, as real as this wine is, that's how real. I give you my authentic guarantee that what I've spoken to you in the gospel, it's real, it's good, it's yours for the taking. And so it's God's way, uh, in a sense, of putting it in writing. You know, uh, it may be when a guy shakes hands with you and uh, you want to sign because you want to buy this property that he has and... He says, no, no need for that. My word's good. You know, and you're like, you're agreed on a certain price to buy it at a certain time. And, and you immediately think, it's no good. He's holding out on me. 
and he's going to sell it to somebody that's got a higher price. You know, well, this is God's way of just underlining and, in a sense, signing it for us uh, that it it is good. And and God signs His promise with the supper for our benefit, for our faith. It's not as though God needs to confirm what He says. Uh, as though God is saying, I swear or I promise in this way. It's for our sake to establish our faith in the gospel. Calvin writes this, Our faith is slight and feeble unless it be propped up on all sides, on all, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, on all sides and sustained by every means. If not, it trembles, wavers, totters, and at last gives away. Now, this is the mighty John Calvin, right? The, the, one of the great leaders in history. But he felt like he and everyone else's faith is slight and feeble and must be propped up by things like the Lord's Supper. That was true humility. And I would picture it this way. I know we did this, I don't know how many times, with one of our children of holding them up so that they could drink out of a water fountain, Right? In, in that little moment of them, you know, doing it, I just remember the sounds of it, you know, and the struggle to get the mouth in the right place and all that. Well, think of that in this way, that the supper, not that the supper is conveying something special to you that the gospel doesn't, but the supper by its imagery, by its picture is holding you up to the gospel so that you can drink of it. So that it's more accessible, so that you see it, you sense it, you know it better. He holds it, it's like it holds us up to the water fountain of Christ so that we, we drink. <clears throat> Another way to put it is that the supper takes you by the hand and leads you to Christ. The gospel has led you to Christ, and now the supper in its picture as well seeks to confirm that and all the more strongly lead you to the cross. <clears throat> and because we're physical beings, because it's difficult for us to conceive of His goodness, He leads us by very physical things to, to look through the window of these things, like the bread and the wine, and to see all the more clearly the precious cross of Christ. So we should be encouraged that the Lord wants to give us this extra window to see what he just said to us in the gospel. And, of course, in this word, there's the word of hearing, but now we've got a word of, of touching, of tasting, of smelling, of eating, of drinking. See, it's a word that we experience, and it's the same word of the gospel. The gospel proclaims the promise of Christ and His cross and all His benefits. And then the supper paints the picture for us of Christ and His cross and all of His benefits. And so God comes at us in this twofold way to convince us of His goodwill toward us. I just love that idea. God convincing us of His goodwill toward us in Christ Jesus. Calvin puts it this way, The supper is a mirror in which we may contemplate the riches of God's grace which He lavishes upon us. A mirror in which we may contemplate the riches of God's grace which He lavishes 
upon us. And so the supper is this guarantee, this seal of God's goodwill that He feels toward us. And He testifies to that goodwill in the supper. And He sustains us in faith in the supper and nourishes us and confirms us and increases our faith by the use of the supper. So, given us then this institution so that we can better believe, we can better grasp We can better receive Christ. We can better benefit from Christ, be enriched by Christ, rejoice in what He has done for us, uh, rejoice in that He has given His body for us and shed His blood for us. Now, that sets the stage then to understand what Paul would mean by participating in the body of Christ. It's because we are participating in believing what God has proclaimed in His truth in Jesus. So, first of all, just the relationship between the Word and the Supper. And that sets the stage then for this idea that we participate in the Supper. We participate in Christ, as he says here in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Uh, The cup of blessing, many think that this was, uh, the the cup that Jesus took was the third cup of the Passover. There were four cups. Some think it's the fourth cup. But the cup of blessing doesn't mean uh, the cup that you bless, the cup, or the cup that itself as a cup brings blessing. But that indicates the cup over which the blessing is pronounced. That is the cup at at which point you give thanks and you bless God for His gift. Uh, The old Jewish uh, prayer at this point was, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who gives us the fruit of the vine, for instance. So, cup of blessing means the cup at, at which point you bless God, you give Him thanks. But now it becomes uh, the, the blessing or the praise and thanks for God giving us Christ Jesus, you see a new meaning to the cup of blessing, the cup over which we bless God and thank Him and rejoice that He has given us and shed His blood for us through His Son, that He has given His very body for us. And the the reversal of first wine and then bread here is to set up His statement in verse 17 in talking about the bread and the unity of the body, which we'll get to uh, at another study. But this idea of participation, it's a word that you've heard a lot, a Greek word called koinonia, right? Fellowship. Uh, so, and, and actually, it probably is best translated with two words, communal fellowship or communal participation. Uh, taken from 1 Corinthians 1.9 where he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the participation or koinonia of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you've been called into this joint participation with the people of God in Christ. You have a joint fellowship with Christ. And he's talking about that same thing. And the implication, as we'll get to it, is that As you come into fellowship with Christ, you you join with His people in a new community that is in fellowship with Christ. So there's this participation in Christ. And 
the idea is that we're to think of, or he's thinking here of the share that all Christians enjoy in Christ. And we enjoy it together of all the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. So the idea in coming to the table, in a sense, is to get your share, (laughs) to get your share in an outward, visible way that helps you to get your share spiritually and receive the benefits of Christ that are purchased for you. That's the sense here of our participation in Christ, our receiving a share in Christ, our receiving our interest in the death of Christ. You know the word interest, which means your right or your title or your legal share of something, or it indicates your participation in the advantage of something. We have an interest in that stock, you know. It doesn't mean I'm just interested in that stock. It's like I'm invested in that stock, and I have the benefit of that stock, so to speak. And so the idea of participation means that we, we come to the table to visibly express by faith our believed interest and share in all that Christ has done for us, all that His death has purchased for His people. And it's so wonderful, and however the Lord's, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is given out to the people of God, whether it's coming down front or some churches, you know, extend it out and pass it out. It doesn't matter how it's done. The idea is the body of Christ is being shared with the people. The blood of Christ is being shared with the people. And we're eating and drinking and taking our share. And this means that we're sharing in all the rich benefits that Christ has won for us by His death. Uh, for us. So it's, it's, it's the most wonderful thing week after week or month after month to enjoy this, uh, this, act, this outward statement of our faith in Jesus Christ. So sharing in the benefits that he's won by us. It's interesting in the Jewish teaching, uh, the Jewish instruction for the Passover meal, uh, this is written about it. It says, in every generation... Each man must so regard himself as if he came forth out of Egypt. Okay, so thousand years after the deliverance from Egypt, and you're celebrating the Passover, which if you don't know, this is a celebration of when the death angel passed over Israel as he was bringing death to the firstborn in Egypt. And because Israel, according to God's command, had put blood on the doorpost of their houses, the death angel passed over their houses, did not bring judgment to them. They were preserved and saved, and then they forever celebrate this Passover meal. That blood was shed for them. That one, uh, The indication is that a substitute has died, therefore the firstborn doesn't die. That's the celebration of Passover. The first... The, the, A sacrifice has died, therefore the firstborn doesn't die. And so a hundred years, a thousand years after that, in every generation, each person must regard himself as if he came forth out of Egypt. And here are the words that were to be read. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. 
And so there's that idea of each one of us, even though we do it jointly, we do it as a congregation, as a covenant community, join with one another. There's that sense in which each one of us individually come and say, I'm coming to get my share of Jesus, my share of his blessings, to believe him for all that he has done for me. To be just like those uh, Jewish people saying, it's because of what the Lord did for me. And so when we come, it's what he's done for me in dying for me. It's the same words of Paul, uh, as you recall in Galatians 2.20, where he says, for me to live... Uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's Philippians, it's not Galatians 2.20. Um, where he says in Galatians 2.20... I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, did Paul think, you know, he didn't give himself for anybody else? Of course not. It's a way to personally say, it's not just that he gave himself in general for some people. He gave himself for me. He was thinking about me. He substituted for me. And in the supper, this is another way that we're encouraged as bread is put into your hands, the wine put into your hands to say, you have an interest in Christ. You have the benefits of his salvation. Not just this one and this one. You, it's yours. He's yours for your forgiveness, for your transformation, for your renewal. He's yours. What a, a great encouragement, isn't it? to help us clear the cobwebs about whether this applies to me or not. Well, yes, it does apply to you. Here, have some bread. Have some wine. He is yours. Believe Him. Trust Him. It's to take us, you see, and lift us up to the water fountain so that we drink, so that I'm not just standing there looking up at the water fountain saying, I wish it was for me. I wish I could get some water. No, the supper helps take us and lift us up to drink from that water fountain so that we Our thirst is slayed, is slaked by the precious uh, work of Jesus. So uh, we come to this table using this visible outward sign saying to ourselves, I receive what the Lord has graciously done for me by giving up his body and shedding his blood. I believe in what he has done for me. And it's, it's really a repeat kind of what we, what our, our dear brothers and sisters said earlier, I receive and rest upon Christ alone. And it's a way to come with an outward testimony and say, taking the bread and the wine, I receive and rest upon Christ alone. I take him as mine. I renew my trust in Jesus. I refresh myself in the promise that Jesus is mine and his forgiveness is mine and his renewal is mine every time we come for the Lord's table. So bread and wine represent what Christ has done for us. There's no idea here that the bread becomes somehow the body of Jesus or that the wine somehow becomes the blood blood of Jesus. Jesus, of course, when he did this, the initial time in in the upper room, he was there in flesh and blood, declaring, this is my body, this is my blood, the, the, my blood in the covenant. Obviously saying, these represent, they stand for, these are symbols of what I'm going to do for you. 
I'm going to give my body up for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. And now for all time, it becomes that wonderful symbol for us to come to the the body given for us and the blood shed for us and to rest in it, to take it, to, to receive it for our own forgiveness and renewal. And so in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, you recall he says what, what Adrian read, this is my body which is for you. It's this past event that was accomplished and done. That's what he's talking about. This is my body which is for you. And so you're to look upon that sacrifice and renew yourself in it and trust in it. Or as Mark says, uh, Jesus said in giving the supper, this is my blood shed for many. Okay, Well, that's to look to a particular historical event, see? the shedding of his blood, and for us to participate in that by trusting in what the gospel has proclaimed to us. And now the supper takes us to that same promise to believe in the great work that Christ has done for us. I'd like for you to back up with me to John chapter 6 to look at the graphic way that Jesus puts this in John chapter 6. This is on page 892. Verse 52 of John 6, 52. Now this is, for many of us, at one point or other, is a strange passage. It's just, uh, it's so graphic. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because he has just said in verse 51, uh, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, they're like scratching their head and say, how in the world can he give us his flesh to eat? Well, Jesus doesn't back off. He presses it. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, that is the manna in the, in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking about anything physical here, but in the most graphic way, he's saying, you have to take what will be the result of my body being given and my blood being shed, and you must take these things to yourself and have them. And the reason I think he uses this graphic term of eating and drinking, one, it's to indicate the helplessness, the dependence. If you've ever seen anyone, I've seen a few films here and there of people who hadn't eaten for days or maybe even weeks and suddenly were given food and, and you kind of tremble at the thought of how they were starving and how they're trying to get food into their mouth because of their starving. And that's one of the ideas here is that I'm absolutely dependent upon this food, this salvation that you've accomplished for me, Lord Jesus, and I take it to myself. 
It's the idea, too, of His giving us life. He calls Himself the bread of life. That because of His death, because He took punishment away from us, we can have life. We're not going to receive judgment and condemnation. We receive eternal life and blessing because He has taken our death away. And it's a way, too, of not just looking at Jesus Christ or thinking about Jesus Christ or talking about Jesus Christ, but taking Jesus Christ to yourself, resting upon Him, having Him, enriching yourself on Him, sustaining yourself on Him, refreshing yourself in Him, relieving your conscience in His blood and body, being given hope by what He's done, being given peace and shalom by what He has done. All that's in that idea of you must eat my body. You must drink my blood. You see? It's a graphic way to say you must involve yourself and trust yourself completely to me. And, and of course, there's the idea of rejoicing and blessing God for what He's done in giving His Son in this way. Well, our time is gone. I want to just give you this illustration. It's the same book I, I read um, on the siege of Leningrad. And one of the terrible things in the siege of Leningrad, as you might know, is how f- food, of course, became so scarce. And there's a instance in the book, this, this lady who was uh, a keeper of the Heritage Museum would be on top of the museum looking for possible bombs and things that would hit the museum. So every night they would take a post, somebody, and, and just keep watch. And this particular night, the uh, whole set of warehouses near the Heritage were just lit up, and it was the huge, giant storage for all the food of Leningrad. And the Germans had discovered where it was, and they just torched it all. It was gone. So for the months after that, you got a little piece of bread every day, and that's all. Everybody was slowly starving, slowly starving because they didn't have enough food to eat any day. But that's all there was, and it was the only way to keep everybody alive. But then one after another, older people, people with any kind of a disease were just dying left and right every day. Every day people were dying. Imagine into that context what would happen if somebody came and said, there's bread, there's bread. There's all the bread that you can imagine and everybody gets it and there's cheese and there's milk and there's vegetables and there's fruit. Everybody can come and have it. This is in a sense what God has done in His grace and mercy. He's thrown the doors open and said, Here is my Son. Trust Him. All the riches that He has purchased in His death and resurrection are yours to be had. And it's symbolized. It's pronounced and proclaimed in the gospel and then symbolized in this glorious institution in which we are pictured as coming to have it. And so God is telling you Sunday after Sunday with the gospel, come and get your share. Come and get your share of what He's won for you by His death. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The promise of the gospel. And I just think 
What an amazing thing that God has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the image of God, we read in Hebrews. He's the glory of God, we read in 2 Corinthians. The, the showing forth of the glory and image of God. And what is that glory? What is proclaimed in the gospel of the glory of Jesus? Paul summarizes, he says, we proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And you think about this, wait a minute. So God is revealing His glory to the world and He's revealing that glory primarily through what? A cross? That's it? That's what He's doing? Yes. Just think of the tenderness of that. Think of the kindness in God saying, you want to see me? Here I am. I show you through my own Son. And that's why, you see, Paul can say here, as long as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim His death until He comes. In this we proclaim the glory of God, the glory of a God who would humble Himself the glory of a God who would die for His enemies. That's the revelation of the glory of God. Proclaimed Sunday after Sunday, not only in the gospel, but in the precious Lord's Supper that we celebrate. Praise His name that this is how He's chosen to show Himself to the world. Let us pray. Lord, we honor You. We lift You up. We exalt you, O Lord. You are the one, you the God-man, who come and reveal the glory of God. As John said, in you, you tabernacle among us, and in you we see the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. No one has seen God, but you have explained Him. You have shown Him. As you said to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, gracious God, thank you that you reveal yourself to us so wonderfully in the precious proclamation of Jesus Christ. And then it's pictured so beautifully in the bread and the wine. This is our God, a God who would give himself for his people. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away